Hello and welcome to Mid to Dialogue, episode number 157. This interview is with Harriet Ruff, IBM Social Consulting based in London, working on social business, big data and content analytics. In this conversation, we explore what is social business. We look at the cross-section of big data and social media, as well as dig into the IBM activities at Wimbledon, yes, the tennis tournament, where Harriet spent two weeks at this year's tournament driving social data with Wimbledon. Playing with big, quote-unquote, data and social media in sports is a great way to experiment. Harriet shares with us some insights and lessons learned. the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T.com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to The Minter Dialogue. Today, I have someone who I have the pleasure of meeting through my good friend, Andrew Grill, who also works at IBM. So Harriet is a, um, a shaker and baker in all things social at IBM. So tell us, Harriet, who you are, what you do, and tell us, as always, what is your mindset? So I'm Harriet Ruff. I work at IBM in the IBM social consulting arm, um, which maybe doesn't seem that normal for IBM, you know, the big old blue technology company. And I suppose the way I got into working for social business was... Um, I did an English degree, which, again, a little bit alternative for IBM. I didn't do computer science or anything like that. Um, and I came in, I started on some employee engagement stuff, which involved lots of text analytics behind forum feedback and things like that. And from there, it was obviously a natural progression into social business. So I was kind of swept up into the social business team. Um, and I kind of inherently understand social because I've written a blog for the last four years. That was actually a food blog and I still do that in my spare time as kind of a hobby but now I have a blog that's more kind of professional Mm -hmm. and talks about social business and things as well but the two are kind of inextricably linked Mm -hmm. I guess. Um, Well to the extent that they they also represent who you are. mm -hmm, Absolutely I kind of talked about having alter egos online so I have harrietruff.com which is my kind of more business side and then I have Hattie Ruff who is my food blogging alter ego as I kind of describe it so on my two Twitter accounts there's there's quite an obvious difference Mm -hmm. Um, and I suppose about my mindset it is really easy to talk in cliches when you're talking about mindsets and I'm sorry I'm probably going to do exactly the same thing and I was thinking about things you know like when in Rome and if you're going to do it wrong do it right and this kind of stuff Um, but I guess my mindset is kind of to say yes to things even if it pulls you out of your comfort zone or if it's something that you're not quite comfortable with or you know if if you feel like you shouldn't be there because you're not experienced enough or old enough or you're a girl or something like that. And I often find myself in that kind of position being, you know, the only girl at something, the youngest person at something or, you know, something like that. And so I think my mindset is, yeah, to say yes to things. Well, so I can imagine you being a woman coming into IBM without the engineering degree or some sort of highly rational thing, this linguistic story. And going into social at IBM is quite a melange of differences, things for IBM. So you are perhaps somewhat of a disruptor by your nature. I think I probably am, but I don't think I'm at the forefront of the disruption. I think it's actually probably been going on for a lot longer than anyone would imagine. My um, 
I came in as a graduate, and actually in my start group, we were, um, the girls outweighed the boys, for example. The kind of more humanities-based degrees outweighed the more technical kind of degrees. In your promotion, uh, the, the new people coming into yeah. IBM? Yeah, in the graduate starter group that I was in. And, and I actually think that's probably been going on for quite a while, and I often find myself in a kind of female-dominated environment in some respects within the company. But obviously, you know, it's, it's up the ranks that the the kind of the gender divide is is more of a I wouldn't call it a problem just more kind of significant and more obvious which is not uncommon around the world so you work in the social business area so give us an idea of how what makes social business a la IBM Um, So there's kind of two different ways to talk about social business. There's an internal kind of social and there's an external kind of social. So the way when I talk about external, I mean the way that a company presents itself to the outside world using social tools, whether that's kind of literally seeing people and speaking to people. I think people forget about social being this real interaction between humans. And obviously, the internet has given us a platform for that communication online. But realistically, social is about an interaction. So that's the kind of external side of it. And a lot of what we do at IBM is about internal social. So Again, there's a lot of buzzwords that you can use around social. Obviously, it's the easiest way to talk to clients about it. But, I mean, the biggest buzzword, as it were, that we use is collaboration. And there is actually a lot of meaning behind that. And when I think of collaboration, I think about a kind of sharing culture whereby, for example, if within my internal network, and when I say internal network, I mean social network, um, the platform we use online, is about not keeping things close to your chest. So if you've... presented a really good um, presentation to a client and you've got a really good slide deck and kind of script that goes with it you don't keep that to yourself as this this amazing thing that you've created you actually share it with the wider IBM community so then when somebody else goes to give a similar presentation Mm -hmm. they can use it and it's not about kind of you know making sure that people are taking credit for things this that and the other but we actually have a way of um kind of rating our employees on this thing that we call social pulse so the people that are sharing the most and have the most interaction, have the most comments and likes and things like that on their internal blogs that they do that are sharing their own expertise and their own knowledge and their own kind of resources and tools are actually, you know, it's used as a measure of how well you're performing at work as well. So in short, a social business for IBM is a business that shares internally amongst themselves without without it being forced. It's kind of an organic culture change I suppose Mm. and then obviously externally it's one where that sharing is kind of expanded to the outside world Mm. all right so I want to dig in on that a second because I mean obviously being IBM and in the consultancy world being a sort of a knowledge based business the idea of sharing knowledge is is really at the core of what you're at I'd be interested to know what percentage or how do you look at the content that's being provided that's internal and that which is allowed and and then repurposed or redistributed externally how does that get managed so obviously um there's lots of kind of policies around what what is appropriate to be shared externally and actually we've started to really really encourage individuals and execs to have their own kind of social brand online and become ambassadors for the IBM brand because obviously we inherently trust our employees we've got an amazing workforce there's almost half a million people work for IBM and so if every single one of those can be projecting the kind of the IBM values um, and our brand then we've got 
half a million kind of tools for success. So before, I think people were very nervous about writing things online um, and worried about where they can go. And obviously, disclaimers can only do so much to kind of help that. Um, But I blog um, externally about internal things and obviously there is a line and you understand where that line is and my kind of way of thinking about it is if you wouldn't if you wouldn't say it to somebody at the pub that you don't know then don't don't put it online because anyone can read that and also another way of looking at it is if every single person in the company did the same thing as you would it cause a big problem and if it would then again don't do it but we are starting to coach execs about blogging and tweeting and sharing kind of um, positive experiences that they've had with IBM online so if I travel with work I will use my food blog to blog about a new city that I've seen or if I go to a conference with work I'll blog about uh, an interesting speaker that I've heard there or I'll live tweet when somebody from IBM is speaking at that event Mm -hmm. for example and a really nice story as well about something being shared externally is um, interactive experience which is our kind of digital agency kind of arm of the business um, have a kind of internal site which we use to share lots of kind of resources and tools and things. And actually, they discovered that there was so much incredible content internally being shared on there. They've now developed this whole new external website, which I think it's either about to be launched or has just been launched. We've seen it kind of prototyped internally, but they've kind of pulled all of this incredible internal content and and pushed it out externally because it's of such high quality. But there must be some kind of gateway to protect IP coming out because presumably not all content being done internally is relevant or desirable externally. No, absolutely. And obviously there's lots of kind of vetting and huge, huge security around the the kind of the content that we're working with inside the company. But on the kind of the other side of the scale there is such a hunger in in the kind of marketing world for good content and Mm. producing organic content that has meaning is actually really difficult and when content becomes kind of contrived or is kind of routine so when you have to start having like you know on a Monday we push this out on a Tuesday you know it should be it should be kind of curated as part of just what you know the interesting things that happen within the company and those are just pushed out as and when they're they're appropriate but again it obviously is vetted and it's and it's reappropriated for the external world because there are some things that aren't interesting but who, do, who, who does that veto who's the vetoing the vetting how does that get managed um obviously we have an enormous internal in-house pr and marketing team which you know at events there'll always be a presence there as well so talk me through then you you write an internal blog post you possibly have to get your own boss to sign off on it yes or no and then it wants you you like hey this would be a great article to publish on my own blog how, how what's the process to take to get that to happen there is a lot of trust involved so if I'm blogging about something externally I will just blog about it and I I've signed business conduct guidelines I know how to conduct myself mm-hmm. um in the kind of the the external world we're all ambassadors for the brand and so mm-hmm. yeah we've got a lot of trust in our employees we we know as employees that there are certain things that we should and shouldn't tweet and so we behave in mm-hmm. that kind of manner and it's not you know obviously if it's if it's going to go to the bbc or something like that there'll be a pr person present and mm-hmm. it's very it's very different but on personal blogs it's it's all about trust really and when you you know this phenomenon of return love if you will or rt love 
So if someone else who identifies you favorites you a lot, you might favor them back, retweet what they do, they retweet you. Is that something that you're promoting amongst the IBMers as well? Or do you sort of leave it to the natural way of things in um, it's, it's a bit of both actually sometimes if there's a really interesting thread going on online so there's a hashtag that's really relevant to lots of IBMers we will be notified about it um, but ultimately those that are active on social and are, you know have their finger on the pulse will be interacting with things like that anyway so I guess you know our job as a social team in terms of internal kind of um, social progress I guess is a way of putting it is to just you know encourage people to blog and tweet and have a presence online and if they pick it up and they find it fun and interesting then that's something they can pursue on their own time so as I say yeah it's a bit of both well and then presumably the IBM's official Twitter feed will pick up your own material and, and decide who you want to take out of that and that you know that's a, quite a sign of recognition as well Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the kind of at IBM Twitter account is is kind of like the ultimate compliment if you if what you're doing personally is picked up by them. And so they'll retweet IBM as appropriately. And, you know, on Instagram, they'll post pictures and things Mm. like that. So, again, they they use our content to to help curate what they're what they're writing as well. All right. So, Harry, when you began, as you said, you were, you were sort of looking at uh, linguistics, uh, data out of um, language, and now you're working in big data and social. Tell us about the cross-section between big data and social in your job and what you do at IBM. So I suppose there's there's two ways of looking at it, and the real thing about big data is that you have to be able to find meaning within it. If there's no so what at the end of the the data, then it's it's kind of irrelevant. So lots of people are worried about stats and figures and sentiment is something that people constantly, constantly talk about. And it's all very well saying that we have X amount of followers, we have X amount of interaction, we've got this much percentage of positive sentiment and these are the main themes and it's all it's all very well saying that, but if it doesn't actually translate to kind of real business values and objectives and strategy, then it's it's kind of worthless. So I guess what big data is to kind of social business at IBM, and this is talking about kind of using external um, sort of Twitter or or um, Instagram or whatever data, is about adding true business value and meaning to it, and so we can start to kind of strategize about things for companies and really really actually help them in that sense when you started talking you said a lot of your work is based on what happens internally but if you're working with a client and you know your specialization knowledge of everything all things social your understanding of the data world how does how do you get a client to ask the right questions and and get out of social the the most meaningful elements because i think if, if you a lot of Senior executives, you know, obviously understand what is this idea of what is big data. It's a lot of data, come from complex places in atemporal moments, asynchronized moments, and then you have social, and there's no one doesn't understand that. But making it effective is the sort of the hard part. The IP is in there. So how, what is the type of process that you can go through in order to extract meaningful data out of social? So when I'm um, working with vast amounts of data, it's about kind of structuring this unstructured data and that's what you know the tools that we have here are are really really powerful and can do and we talk about kind of hypothesizing um hypothesizing 
with this data beforehand. So if you're looking at employee engagement kind of data, which will have come from an internal source, um, we there are kind of key drivers for engagement that we look at. So how well are people communicating? Do people trust the company? And it's about building these dictionaries that that use all of these kind of words and synonyms and kind of connotations of those words and actually trying to build a bit of a picture on a large scale um, that is probably quite high level to start with and then really, really being able to deep dive into those specific things. And so um, you can hone in on those individual kind of maybe spikes or anomalies and actually then get back to the real kind of raw even individual posts that might have driven that initially. Mm-hmm. All right. So you, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the show, Harry, was um, Wimbledon. Wimbledon would just happen with lots of uh, strawberries and cream and PIMS cups, presumably, and a few other things on the data front. So IBM has been involved with uh, sports in a, in, in a lot of, for quite a long time. Tell us a little bit about the relationship that, I, that IBM has with Wimbledon and tennis first, so we can all understand where we're at. So Wimbledon and IBM have had a partnership for the last 26 years, and essentially Wimbledon kind of and IBM are working together because Wimbledon, and I think this is almost a direct quote, and I'm sorry if it's not quite direct, um, want to be the best tennis tournament in the world. And using kind of IBM's um, skills with data, that's what we're trying to help them to do. So any stat that you see come up on the television is going to be driven by IBM. They have three interns on every single court, data inputting, forehand, backhand, forced error, net, etc. All of the kind of the speeds and things like that we work with Hawkeye to do. And so... Any any number that you see come up on a scoreboard will have been powered by IBM in some way or another. Um, and that's not necessarily the side of Wimbledon that I was working in specifically. Um, so I was working in the social side, and there's obviously lots of different facets. So we power their website and all of their apps and obviously manage the security behind um, kind of breaches of data and things like that. So with social, what we were doing is basically listening to all conversation on Twitter that involves Wimbledon, which sounds very straightforward, but it's actually a lot harder than it sounds. So how do we find all of the tweets that definitely, definitely are relevant to Wimbledon? Because Wimbledon is a place in London, for one thing. Some people will just send a tweet that says, come on, Andy. How do we know that that's Andy Murray, for example? And so Where, where the feds are coming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so there's only there's only a certain amount that you can do to be really, really accurate. And our kind of um, approach is to be really really sure that people are talking about Wimbledon so you'll see stats all over the place that people have curated about the millions and millions and millions of tweets that might have been sent about Wimbledon and obviously every single person's data is going to be slightly different but accuracy is what we were kind of going for so um, we can then help advise Wimbledon um, in terms of content that they're curating and what people are talking about online and there's obviously some kind of triggers as well that we can see about popularity of players and the kind of celebrities that people are talking about and things like that as well so it was a really fascinating place to be for two weeks and right, i can imagine let me uh, just dive into one element which is you so you're evaluating all the data and it's got to be used so some of that data is being rebroadcast onto wimbledon.com or .org or whatever it is and then, uh, but it's also been commented on the television and used by the different, you know, John McEnroe's that are commenting. 
do you get involved in that? And what, to what extent does IBM help either upstream understand better the better data to be providing to the commentators, or do you even participate live? How does that work? Well, I can only talk to the kind of social side of the data because that's what I was involved in, but we also used um, Watson, which is our kind of cognitive computer, and basically fed Watson all of the kind of data, historical data on Wimbledon. And within this, we we basically developed a social command centre which had... Um, so it had location about where all the tweets were coming in from. It had the specific players that were being spoken about, the celebrities that were being spoken about, the highest influencers um, on social and various things like that. And as well along the side, we had this live feed of um, kind of results. So if um, Federer was about to hit his 1,000th ace ever or if Murray was about to win his 500th game ever, we would instantly flick up with an alert which would be obviously in real time and thus the kind of teams that are pushing out so the kind of the digital teams at Wimbledon can push out tweets and blog posts and digital content from that real time and live and using this social dashboard can do that so um, the press teams can see the dashboard in real time for example so we're helping in that way in the kind of real-time sense, but also at the end of the days, um, in the morning and the evenings, we were also pushing out reports and blog posts and things that kind of curated all of this content into a kind of why. So if there was a spike about a certain theme or topic that was slightly strange, or if there was a certain celebrity that suddenly started being spoken about and it was kind of strange, Mm -hmm. then we'd look into it. So a good example is... um, Taylor Swift was constantly spoken about through Wimbledon. She didn't even attend Wimbledon this mm. year. And that was because the night before the first day, she brought Serena Williams on stage at her concert in Hyde mm-hmm. Park. That generated lots of conversation in relation to Serena Williams. And then Andy Murray were admitted to having Taylor Swift on his iPod. And then Andy Murray, I think, was taking the mech out of James Ward about having Taylor Swift on his iPod. And so... You know, all of these kind of things that are happening that aren't necessarily that tennis related were being bubbled up on our social dashboard. And it's very interesting to see that these people do have a huge influence over Wimbledon, even though they might not even be there. Kim Kardashian is another example. She is friends with Serena Williams and bumped into her in Harrods. And so Kim Kardashian instantly spikes and goes up to the top of the celebrity mm-hmm. kind of rankings, as it were without even being at Wimbledon. So it's, it's interesting to see how far the conversation goes and what actually is getting people to speak about Wimbledon, the tennis tournament itself. Mm. Also, listening to you, what, what, I have to understand, what is the purpose for IBM? I mean, how do they evaluate the success of the activity with, with Wimbledon? And, and why are they investing so much in these sports? What, give us a little bit of an insight on that. I think the reason that IBM partners with um, these big sporting events is for more than one reason, but primarily it's a really good way of kind of showcasing our new technology. So the Watson stuff that I was speaking about is brand new stuff. And the Social Command Center was born out of a uh, part of IBM called Emerging Technologies. And it's basically a way of not experimenting because it's much more developed than that, um, but kind of pulling all of these really great IBM resources together in one place and 
obviously we take clients to show them um, what's going on at Wimbledon and it's and it's fascinating to see behind the scenes at Wimbledon and, it, mm. and it's amazing to see how much goes into it as well. It's, mm. I mean, it was unbelievable to me and I work for IBM. I couldn't believe quite how much we we there is to go behind even just one stat flicking up on the mm. television. It's interesting to know how many backhands have happened in a game, but it's incredible that somebody somewhere is actually having to you know, process that data and it is IBM that's doing it. So I think um, in answer to your question, the, the real value in IBM partnership partnering with um, kind of sports competitions is because it, it's a hive of data. There's so much data to play with and it's so interesting to see how many different ways we can use this data, whether it's for digital content or whether it's just to put stats in front of fans. And, you know, inherently people love stats. They do. And so it's it's really interesting to see how these stats can be developed in different ways. And every year, you know, if you look at what we were doing at Wimbledon last year, it would have been vastly different to what we were doing this year because we've developed our technology so quickly yeah, and well, so I mean, fast. As you say, you use the word experimenting and, and then took it back, but I think it is about experimentation, as developed as it might be. Mm. We're still in the new phases, and so we have to experiment. That's how we learn. All this data, you're giving it for, you're learning about it, you're exposing it to clients, you're showcasing your technologies, and you're helping the commentators. What about the players? Were any of the players, you know, did you go to see, hey, Andy, listen, you know, your backhand sucks, um, or whatever. Uh, you, you should be standing one meter higher. The first, uh, you know, any, because you know, there's a lot of data being used for sports teams. And of course, all this data we're, we're feeding in, well, Andy hit 63%, this and that, and whatever. Is that being something that the players are using? So this isn't a side of it that I was involved in, but I obviously was there and saw you know, everything that we were doing at Wimbledon. And at the end of every day, we give each player a little memory stick that's got all of their stats from that day on it. And we work closely with their coaches and things, and the data is there to back up what they're saying, or the player can then see that themselves. So I'm not quite sure how far it's used, but we are, you know, we have IBMers in the players' lounge constantly through the day. Um, and as I say, at the end of the day, they do get given a, a little memory stick with all of their mm. stats from the day on it. So I guess the coaches interpret that and use that in whichever way they will. Yeah, or not. <laughs> I, I would understand. Well, I would love to know a little bit more about that. You know, I've, I bought the um, connected tennis racket that Babolat has. So I, I've had my experience of understanding why, how much spin I'm torquing on my backhand, forehand, so on and so forth. It's a lovely space, so I'm happy to be talking about tennis on this podcast. haven't had that in a long time. So um, what were some of the more interesting insights that you came across as you were looking through this? I mean, so what I want to do is look at this from a brand or a business perspective. If I'm a business and I have all this big data out there, what am I going to take away from it? So what sort of insights did you take away from your two weeks, or at least from IBM's perspective? Well, as I was saying earlier about the celebrities, it's really interesting to see how far the conversation reached and what people were actually talking about and what was driving conversation. I think what was really interesting for Wimbledon is, so um, there are obviously lots of sponsors at the event that bring guests, and often it's celebrity guests, and there was... Um, some celebrity guests from One Direction that were brought to Wimbledon, for example. And that conversation reaches a whole new audience for Wimbledon. And so they've now got these One Direction fans who are, I suppose, without generalising horribly, (laughs) teenagers, maybe in the UK, but globally as well, who probably aren't watching the tennis, 
But they're interested suddenly in Wimbledon because one of the members of One Direction are there. And so Wimbledon can now see that they've got this whole new audience um, that they're projecting their digital content to. And so how do they, you know, these teenagers are maybe the next generation of Wimbledon fans and tennis fans. And so how do they capitalize on that quickly? Mm -hmm. And you can capitalize on things quickly using social. And so how do they interact with that? Obviously, we, we give this information to them so they can kind of develop digital content that's geared towards these younger fans posting pictures of the One Directioners, for example, even something as... With a hashtag Wimbledon. Exactly. Something as small as that gets picked up and it's retweeted and it's then reaching this whole new audience. So I think that's one way is kind of basically seeing where the conversation reaches further than just the tennis Mm -hmm. is is fascinating. And also it's um, was really interesting for me to see how conversation instantly changed. So um, when Nadal was knocked out of the tennis, instantly um, Dready Tennis, as he calls himself on his Twitter handle, became the most one of the most influential people on social. And he's not got as many followers as somebody like Federer or Serena Williams, and he hasn't got as much interaction. But suddenly he does generate this amount of interaction. And again with um, Heather Watson... Not necessarily that well known, but I think with Wimbledon, probably because it's in in the UK, everybody really loves an underdog. And it was really interesting just to see how much they do and how much people do get behind them. And so those players are kind of propelled up the social rankings and as well as, you know, up the seed rankings as well. But it's interesting. It was really interesting for me to see just how how quickly people were taking to social to get behind these players, because at home that's the only way that people can support them right, so i get that now I'm, I'm a brand and i'm fed all this data and and so i'm let's say i'm coca-cola and everybody's uh, you're you're doing an event and then all of a sudden kim kardashian starts speaking about coca-cola even though she's not there and so what what does a brand what's a brand supposed to do with this material in order to capitalize on it you know i just spent you know millions of pounds on doing this how do I bring that back into some sort of value for my company? I think there's two ways of looking at it. Obviously, if Coca-Cola are happy to use Kim Kardashian, as an example, as an ambassador, then it's something to capitalize off. Um, because if she's kind of in, you know, they're obviously Coca-Cola is slightly different to a lot of companies in that Every Coca-Cola is for everybody, in mm-hmm. a sense. I'm sure they'd be quite happy for me to say that. Well, and they, they're quite good at social, too. <laughs> um, and so they, they are the kind of company that would be able to capitalise off a celebrity endorsement. Mm-hmm. And if that is an organic celebrity endorsement, then that's great. And we do see lots of horrible, contrived kind of content out there where brands are trying to interact with other brands and celebrities and it doesn't go quite right and it's actually quite awkward to to watch but if you are getting this kind of immediate organic type of engagement then I think capitalizing off it can be something as really small and seemingly kind of insignificant as just a reply to a tweet or Mm -hmm. a retweet of a tweet or you know you can you can then build that out into into a larger piece of digital content that might involve some content on their website or some sort of, um, you know, some sort of blog post elsewhere. So I think it's about, I think for a brand, these kind of social things are about being in real time. So you see that a celebrity has endorsed you in some way or another. You can jump on that immediately if you've got some sort of social listening kind of, you know, well, and, and some assets or some ideas yeah. already in the pipe. 
Exactly. And so I think primarily it's about content, but more than that, it's about content that's organic. And also it's about content that is real time because nobody wants to jump on a bandwagon when it's already gone. Mm -hmm. But if you have the means to jump on it, you know, while it's still flying high, then Mm -hmm. goodness, definitely jump on it. Why not capitalize off it? All right. So uh, just last question I wanted to get back to, which is the notion of uh, the KPI for IBM. How does IBM measure the success of this event is there, you know, are there, you know, the number of retweets, the, what, what is it that, how do you measure why next year you're going to do it, do it again? I mean, outside of maybe having a contract that says, we're going to sign up for 15 years, whatever. Well, we are doing it next year. Right. Um, That's not a scoop. <laughs> um, no. But I think success um, for, I mean, because we do so many different things at Wimbledon, success is obviously measured in things like, you know, security and things like even just, it is unbelievable how much it takes to keep a website running with that much traffic and things like that. And obviously we had no glitches to the public's eye um, in terms of that. So that's that's success in one point, but also just really good feedback from Wimbledon we work really closely we're we're in the same office as the kind of the digital guys at Wimbledon and so having you know daily good feedback from them is is invaluable and I suppose for somebody that's working on the ground there that's what success looks like as being thanked by somebody there Mm. but I suppose I imagine there's many figures and facts about about what success looks like from from a business perspective that I'm not privy to and care less about because it doesn't mean as much to me. Right. So. Well, I mean, uh, presumably Wimbledon is happy, so they, they, they have their stats. But anyway, that was interesting stuff. So, um, Harriet Ruff, how can someone uh, read more about you? We heard about your blog, but what would be the best way to follow you, contact you? Um, I'm quite lucky in that my name's quite unique, so you can just Google Harriet Ruff and you'll find me. But as I said earlier, I do have a little bit of an alter ego online in that I food blog as well. So to find my food blog, it's ssu.kitchen, which stands for sunnier side up. Um, or I'm Hattie Ruff on Twitter and Instagram. And, and on your food blog, what, um, what do you like to talk about the most? I Nowadays, it's changed a lot over the years, but nowadays I tend to talk about healthy and sustainable living and kind of top tips for living healthily and as well as restaurant reviews and where I travel around the world, different kind of city guides and stuff there as well. One last question. When you were hired, how important was it or what, to what extent was the fact that you blogged relevant to being hired? Oh, I think it was integral. It was understanding digital, it was understanding social, and it was also having this kind of entrepreneurial spirit where I kind of started it from scratch and from nothing and just developed it organically over the years and obviously been committed to keeping it going because it was something that I enjoyed. Thank you for being on the show, Harriet. Thank you, Minter. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y. Where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray. Hold me
much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.